Romans. Please turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're in verse 1. We did hear from our Uganda team today. They landed safely in Kampala, Uganda. It was uh, 1040 uh, Ugandan time. They'll get some sleep and then get on some buses to go to Gulu, Uganda, which is northern Uganda, which is about an eight-hour bus ride. Uh, Kent lost his phone somewhere in transport. But other than that, I think everybody made it. So if a phone is all we lost, that's pretty good. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, now that you're nice and comfortable, why don't you stand with me? Let's stand together. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 and then pray together. We're going to at a rapid pace tonight. We're going to cover two whole verses and this through the Bible study. So two verses. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and the acceptable and perfect will of God. Father, we humble our hearts before you, and as we go through this section of scripture, we pray that it wouldn't be routine, that it wouldn't be truths that we know, Lord, but it would be fresh, that we would see this as your love letter, that we'd be reminded by your great mercy. Father, would you send your Holy Spirit to allow us to comprehend the height and depth and width of your love, and that we'd be moved to live for you in a greater way, to surrender to you in a greater way. Would you bless the study in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. We must understand that our position in Christ comes before our conduct for Christ. So much of the teaching in the church today is based on conduct. It's based on you shouldn't drink, you shouldn't chew, and you shouldn't go with girls that do. <laughs> that was what I was always told growing up. Don't drink, don't chew, and don't go that with girls that do. And we, we tend to really push Christian conduct. And we know why, don't we? We know why we desire for people to make godly choices and live holy lives. But many times, it's getting the cart before the horse and we're not identifying with the power of God which actually enables us to live that kind of life. So it becomes really frustrating, doesn't it? We hear this is what you should do, this is what you should do, and we try and we fail, and we try and we fail. But what we've noticed as we've been studying the book of Romans is what comes first. There's 11 chapters of God's grace. Starts out with the bad news of our sinful condition, of how there's none righteous before the Lord. Paul took three chapters to present that like a lawyer in the court, courtroom to where we were all humbled seeing our need for the grace of God. Then we learned that we're justified freely by the grace of God. If for some reason you've missed the first 11 chapters of Romans, I would encourage you go back and read those chapters, maybe listen to some of the studies on the website, Pick up a few CDs if you need to from the media center because it's based on months and months of study of learning about God's grace that now we respond to God's grace. The book of Romans is a radical righteousness that's provided by the Son of God by grace. The work's been finished. It's complete. We're forgiven. We're the sons and daughters of God. Now when we get to this section of scripture, it's not responsibility. It's not legalism. It's not, okay, now here you have to be a living sacrifice unto the Lord. It's a response to the love of God. It's a response to the grace of God. It's a continuation of God's grace flowing in and through our lives. So we're going to look at tonight the elements of commitment. What is it that's inside of the Christian life? But may we not forget the first 11 chapters and we're responding to that. The doctrine of grace comes before the duty. It's doctrine before duty. So if you're taking notes tonight, we're going to look at five primary things, five elements of commitment. And we begin in verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The I is the apostle Paul. Paul is the one who's doing the besieging. And he, who is he besieging? He's besieging his brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice the tone in which that he approaches them as he says, you're my brothers, you're my sisters in Christ. He doesn't say this is the great and grand reverend apostle Paul and you should listen to me. 
He's saying, this is the grace that I've found in my life, and I'm going to pass it on in your lives as well. He uses the word therefore, which links us back to the first 11 chapters. It links us back to all that we've learned about God's grace. Because God has been gracious to us, then this is our response to the grace of God. It says, by the mercies of God. So first we find the motivation for our commitment. Motivation for commitment. Commitment's almost like a dirty word, isn't it, in our society and culture? How many times outside of the church and talking to Christians do you even hear the word commitment? What's it all based on? It's all based on needs and wants and, and feelings and selfishness. So it's almost foreign. It's almost a shock to our, our system when we start talking about commitment. So when it comes to being committed to Christ, what's the motivation? What, what would move us? And I think the motivation is the most important. The basis for the commitment is the most important. And commitments that you have made in your life that have been lasting, there's some deep motivation that has caused that commitment. If you're committed to your spouse, there's some deep motivation that has come over you to make that commitment and walk into that commitment. I bet a lot of you, if you've walked in some vocation, career, profession for a long period of time, there was some motivation, something that, that moved you. A lot of times people stay in a field of work because they really enjoy it. They feel called to it. They're making a difference inside of it. If it's just for money, it usually has some end in sight. So what's the motivation for following Christ? Why would we make this total and complete surrender on a daily basis to Jesus? It's because of the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God that have been listed in Romans? Just a few. This isn't comprehensive. Maybe some others will come to your mind as well. Is justification. It means to be declared righteous just as though we've never sinned. That God could look upon us though we're sinful and we've fallen short, see us robed in Christ's righteousness, you're justified. You're declared righteous. That's mercy of God. That's God not giving us what we deserve. Also, we saw in chapter 5 that God demonstrated his love towards us while we were all messed up, while we were yet sinners, while we didn't have a heart for God, while we weren't at Bible study on a Wednesday night. That's when he demonstrated his love towards us and he gave his son to die for us. Chapter 6 taught us, instructed us that the power of sin has been broken. In fact, it's been defeated. Sin's been buried with Christ. We're risen in newness of life where we no longer have to be slaves to sin. Before we were Christians, there was no hope to have a transformed life. There was no hope to overcome sin in our lives, but sin has been buried with Christ. The penalty of sin's paid for, but also the power of sin is broken in our lives. We get to chapter eight, verse one. Anybody remember? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. After an intense valley in chapter seven, where Paul was all caught up in doo-doo. You can see it for yourself. Go read chapter seven. He was in, you guys with me tonight? I just said doo-doo in church and there was no response. He was all caught up in doo-doo. Huh? Huh? so. What was the doo-doo that he was caught up in? All the things he wanted to do, he didn't do. And the things that he did want to do, he didn't do. And Thus the pun of doo-doo. <laughs> so it's after this valley in chapter 7 that he understands in Christ there's no condemnation, even though the struggle is still very real and present. By the end of chapter 8, we saw there's no separation from the love of God. Nothing can separate you from, from his commitment of love to you. Israel was that example of God's unconditional love in 9, 10, and 11. Then we get to this verse. By the mercies of God. I need you to do something right now for me. I need you to make God's mercy personal in your life the best that you can. Because even though I've just said those glorious truths, sometimes they can feel a mile away, can't they? I'm not feeling the emotions of some of the, those truths. I'm not connecting with them. What's God's story of mercy in your life? What was the condition of your life before you knew Christ as your Savior? What did God save you from? Lamentations tells us that if it wasn't for God's mercies, we would be consumed. So if it wasn't for God being merciful us, to us today, 
we would be consumed by his holiness, by his wrath, by, by his justice. What mercy is God showing you currently in your life? Every morning, God has new mercy, brand new mercy for each and every one of us. You'd think he'd run out of mercy. You'd think he'd go, okay, this time today, there's just no mercy. Time for you to do it on your own, on your own works and your own merit. But every morning, his mercies are new for us. How's he providing for your needs? How's he expressed his provision to you? How's he cared for you? How's he given you that tender touch of his love? That's what we need to identify with tonight. Because if we're not focusing on and connecting with and relating to and living in the mercy of God, then the rest of what we're going to say tonight, at best, is we're just trying to conjure something up. At best, we're like, okay, I better be a living sacrifice to the Lord. I know I need to try harder. I know I need to do better. But that's not the heart of Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's, God, you've forgiven me. God, you gave your son for me. God, you love me. God, you want to spend time with me. I want to serve you. I desire to give my life to you. I'm, I'm motivated by your mercy. I'm touched by this amazing gift of grace that you have given to me. It's the motivation for commitment. When we go on with verse 1, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. This is the call to commitment. This is the call. Paul says that he besieges us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The word besiege, it means to come alongside. It means to beg. It means to exhort. Paul's using strong language here. Can you think of a time in your life where someone said, hey, can we talk for a few minutes? And they came alongside of you and they spoke into your life. And you listened because you knew that they cared for you, that they loved you, that they had your best, their, your best interest in mind. And that's the kind of call to commitment that's here. I wonder if the Apostle Paul was giving this message tonight, in what manner would he give it? In what way would he besiege? In what passion would we hear in his voice? How would it be very calm and very still and him sharing all that Christ is in his own life? We don't see Paul using this kind of language a whole lot throughout his writings. He saves it for a special point for this church in Rome, the, the center of the known world at this time. And he says, I besiege you. I'm coming alongside of you. I think of a few conversations that really impacted my life over the long term. One was with my dad when I was really discouraged in my early 20s about pursuing a call into ministry. And he didn't say a whole lot, but what he said changed the course of my life because I was ready to throw in the towel on this call of ministry. And it, I can still hear his voice in, in my head over the phone. He says, Eric, God's put a call in your life to teach the scriptures and you shouldn't walk away from it so quickly. I was being besieged. <laughs> my dad was calling me alongside and, and urging me to, to action. Another conversation was with Sean Rafferty who came back up from Chihuahua this summer and joined our, our pastoral staff. And we joined RMC at the same time. He was doing high school, I was doing junior high. And I had all of this knowledge of how to do ministry from Bible college and school ministry, had been around a lot of youth ministries, and I got the game plan together. I got the events together, I got the Bible studies together. But what Sean noticed is there was something really important, and it was called love. He says, do you really love these kids? If you moved away, would you miss any of them? And I was really convicted because I knew the answer was no. And it changed the course in which I did ministry. And I started loving and, and caring for the kids. It's those kind of conversations. And some of you need that kind of conversation right now tonight. You need to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's coming alongside of you and saying, you know what? You're not living for Christ. You're not being a living sacrifice. You don't realize that the mercy of God is for you. It's another Bible study. It's another Wednesday night. It's going through the motions and God's saying, I want your attention. I love you. I created you for more. I created you to be a worshiper and to live for me. It's that call to commitment. And as we're called, we present our bodies a living sacrifice. So God wants a very tangible and practical offering. 
This isn't something mystical. This isn't something overly spiritual. God means our actual bodies presented to him in worship. So it might look something like this. God, I give you my eyes today. I want to behold what glorifies you. God, I give you my ears today. My ears belong to you. God, I give you my tongue. I'm presenting my tongue upon your altar. God, please touch and cleanse my tongue. God, I give you my hands. I want my hands to glorify you. I give you my feet. May my feet take me in the direction that would honor and glorify the Lord. God actually wants your body. He wants your mind. He wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants your emotions. The idea of this is total and complete. A total and complete offering that's given to him. The word present, it means to place beside. So we're taking our bodies and we're placing them beside the Lord. We're laying them down before the Lord. And in the midst of this call to commitment, we see the nature of commitment. And that's the next point that we're gonna consider. First, the motivation for commitment, the call to commitment, and then the nature of it. What, What kind of sacrifice is this? And it's to be a living sacrifice. This takes us back to the Old Testament where the animal sacrifices were killed. But that's not the case with us is we're to be an alive sacrifice to God. Our lives are to be upon the altar of the Lord. We're to be holy and acceptable to God. Remember, this is based out of the fact of the righteousness of Christ, that we're robed in Christ's righteousness. And so as we offer this sacrifice unto the Lord, It's one of holiness. So again, this is very practical and tangible to be a living offering unto the Lord. The things that are unholy, okay, God, would you take those out of my life? Those things don't belong on the altar. I can't present those things to you. It's not fitting for me to place this upon the altar. I was listening to the news on the way to church. I heard an interesting report. Maybe you caught it today is Obama's Secret Service guys once again found themselves in trouble. They went to a retirement party, apparently got drunk, and they drove the government vehicle with the lights on into the White House, <laughs> into the barricade. Boom! And they hit the, hit the barricade. And the police show up, and the police officers were wanting to give the test to see how drunk they were, but then the supervisor said, let these... Secret Service guys go home. Apparently, one of them is the number two guy in command. That's a bad day for him, isn't it? And if you've been following the Secret Service the last couple years, it's been one debacle after another debacle after another debacle. And I'm not bringing this up to judge those guys. I'm bringing this up because it's not fitting, right? I see all of you nodding your heads because here you are supposed to be taking care of the president And there's a certain level of morality and behavior that should be involved with that position. You're the number one guy in our country. Your safety is in his hands and this is the way you're conducting yourself and behaving yourself. But how much more convicting when Jesus has died for me and I'm the son of God, I'm the daughter of God and that some of the things that I do that's not fitting to being in the Lord's service. That's why no judgment can go on those guys in the secret service. Because God could come to me and say, uh, you're in my service. Eric, you're in the Lord's service. And you need to be holy and you need to be acceptable unto the Lord. That's the nature of this commitment. I'd encourage you and encourage myself and challenge myself tonight. Is what does this mean? Is there some things that you're looking at with your eyes that don't glorify the Lord? Pornography is a rampant issue for men and women in our culture and our, our society. It's not holy. It's not acceptable to the Lord. Does it need to go? Is there movies that are being watched that, that don't honor the Lord? Is there some music that we're listening to and, man, it's not edifying. It's not drawing near to the Lord. Is there things that you pick up with your hands every single day and every time the Holy Spirit is a little bit of conviction? That's not for you. That's bringing destruction into your heart and into your life. And we begin to examine those things. God, there's words that I shouldn't be speaking. There's words that that I shouldn't be saying. And again, this isn't legalism. This isn't a heavy trip that you need to do this in order to earn or deserve God's favor. He's already given it to you. He's given his son to you. And we respond with this commitment. We respond with presenting ourselves upon the altar. 
and you think about what you present your body to, and that's pretty serious. When you start to go the list of things of what you would actually present or give your body to, and God's saying, give your body to me. I'm calling you to this place of commitment. I'm calling you to this nature of commitment that it involves a surrender to the Lord. And hear me on this. This is God's heart. You're never gonna regret holiness in your life. Never. It's wholeness. In Hebrews 1, verse 9, it says that Jesus was anointed with gladness above all of his fellows because he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. And there's kind of this cultural understanding of holiness where like, wow, if you start walking with the Lord, you're gonna be one of those Jesus freaks and you're never gonna have fun anymore and maybe you're just gonna sit in a room all by yourself and study the scriptures all the time and pretty much just a monastery is the life for you. We'll, we'll see you later. And here's the enemy going, you know what? If you give this up, if you let go of this, if you put that on the altar, you're never gonna have any more fun. And Jesus was the guy that was filled with joy above anybody else. He enjoyed life to the fullest because he never woke up and had to grieve over sin that he committed. He grieved over other sin, but never sin that he, he committed. Think back in your own life. Have you ever regretted holiness? Are you really gonna miss that thing that you're wrestling with right now? Are you, are you really gonna be in a place of regret because you surrendered that to the Lord? No. God's a big God and he can bring transformation in our lives, but he wants it on the altar. He wants it on the altar. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between to where he can make us into that holy and acceptable sacrifice and he can purify and cleanse our lives. It's the, the nature of the sacrifice. And we go on, it says, which is your reasonable service? Your reasonable service. The word reasonable, it means logical or rational. Some translations have translated this as your spiritual act of worship. And that's true as well. In the Greek, it's rooted in our mind. This is not an emotional decision. This is a decision where we actually look at the facts and we go, wow, Jesus, you have done all of this for me. You've justified me freely by your grace. You died for me while I was yet a sinner. It only makes sense for me to present my body to you in worship to be total and complete to you. It does make sense. It's rational in what he's done for us. It's also rational in the fact of what Jesus has done for us, no one else can do. Peter realized this. John chapter six was the feeding of the 5,000. Would have been an incredible moment for the disciples. Had the fish and the loaves that were provided from the boys' lunch, Jesus prays over it. They begin to break and distribute, break and distribute. The fish and the loaves, God multiplies, and there were leftovers. Do you like leftovers? How many unashamedly love leftovers? Yes, I'm with you. And my favorite leftover, maybe yours too, pizza. Pizza is my favorite leftover. It's even good for breakfast. Anybody in agreement? Yeah? All, all three of you? I got an enthusiastic agreement back there. That's great. Well, there was leftovers and there was 12 baskets. How many disciples were there? 12 disciples. And you'd think, how could there be conflict after such an amazing miracle? But we find that Jesus then gave a hard teaching. And he said that the bread, that he was the bread of life, that this physical bread represented him and he was the bread from heaven. So people started to, to leave Jesus when he started to teach about this. And Jesus looks at the disciples and he asks them this question. He said, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's reasonable to offer our total and complete lives to Jesus Christ because he's the only one who can save if we don't follow Jesus Christ, if we don't put ourselves upon his altar, who else is gonna save us? Who else is gonna be our Messiah and our Lord and our Savior? What are some other altars that we present ourselves on? If we're not on the altar of worship, and we're on other altars, what are some of those? The first one that comes to mind for me is the altar of selfishness. 
Sometimes I'm not on the altar of worship because I'm too busy on the altar of selfishness. I'm too consumed with my own needs and my own wants, my own agenda to be in that place of worship and being surrendered to the Lord. Selfishness is the enemy to the altar of worship. It's what keeps us from being in that place where Christ is our first priority and our greatest passion. Maybe it's the altar of success. I wanna be in this place of worship, but instead I'm really concerned with success here and now in this life. Whatever success looks like to you. Maybe it's vocationally, maybe it's as a parent, maybe it's in ministry, you know? I've gotta have this much notoriety as a servant of the Lord. Wait a second, that doesn't make sense, but that's still what's, what's driving me. That can keep us from being in that proper place that the Lord has. Maybe it's the altar of possessions. Mm, man, I, I wanna be on God's altar, but I'm striving to get this. I've gotta be at that place financially. Jesus said you can't have two ma- masters. You either serve God or money. You can't be loyal to both. And sometimes it's that, that altar of possessions that keeps us from, from serving the Lord. This is what I know though, and I think you would agree as well, is all other altars other than the altar of worship leads to bondage and destruction. You get the success and your flesh says, I need a little bit more success. You get the finances and your flesh says, I need a little bit more finances. You get one car and your flesh says, I need two cars. Selfishness is never satisfied. Just ask Snickers, right? I mean, how many Snickers bars does it really take to satisfy? They don't answer that question. They just say Snickers satisfies. After five or 15, I don't know. Still trying that one out. It always leads to bondage. It always leads to a little bit more. Maybe it's that altar of sexual sin. When are you satisfied in that? When is that enough? When is that bucket filled? It's never filled. It's always longing for more. It's a terrible substitute. And this is why God in his love says, this is your reasonable act of worship. Present yourself to me. In Matthew 16, verse 25, it says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is why Jesus in his love to us tells us to daily take up our cross and follow him, to daily get upon this altar. I need to be daily reminded that my life belongs to Christ. I need to daily make this commitment. This is a choice of the will, not of the choice of the feelings. Sometimes the feelings are there. Sometimes it comes In the morning, sometimes it comes on a Wednesday night. Many times it hits us on a retreat. We go, oh Lord, my my life belongs to you. But there's other times, let's be honest and transparent. I'll try to be honest with you. I don't feel it. What I am feeling is all the desires of my flesh. And it has to be a thoughtful choice where I think about the goodness of God. Where I think about the mercies of God. When I think about the depravity of selfishness. And I go, God, it's my reasonable act of worship to place myself upon your altar. I'd encourage you in some way to make this practical. At some part of your day when you're getting ready for the day and you're preparing your physical body is to put yourself on God's altar. Lord, my life belongs to you. I'm presenting my eyes to you. I'm presenting myself to you. That's the nature of our commitment. Also, continuing with the nature of the commitment, there's something that's going to oppose us in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world. The word conformed means to assume a certain form, to be poured into a mold. J.B. Phillips put it this way, I don't care what the world is doing, I'm not going to let it squeeze me into its mold. What's the world? Is the world the cosmos and the stars and the galaxies? No, the world is a system. It's a system that's alive and well. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what the world's economy is. It's what Satan uses to tempt us. It's also what lures our flesh. We see something with our eyes. 
the lust of our flesh, the, the pride of life, wanting people to think well of us. And that's constantly trying to squeeze us into its mold. So in order to, to effectively live out these elements of commitment, in order to be a living sacrifice unto the Lord, there's something we have to reject. You're in one of two categories tonight. You're a conformer or a transformer. One of the two. You're a thermostat where you create the environment around you or you're a thermometer. You're constantly going around going, what does everybody feel about me? What do they think about me? What is the world doing? Have you noticed that Christians always seem to struggle with style? (laughs) And let me now go into that a little bit more. I'm not talking about an individual Christian. I'm not saying that all of you don't have style. But I am speaking about collectively the church. The church as a whole, the body of Christ, always seems to be a step behind the world with style. You know, we're just not quite as trendy in music. We're not quite as trendy with the arts. You know, church buildings can kind of be a a half step behind from where the, the world is at. Because sometimes I think the church as a whole takes on this thermometer approach. They go, what's cool in in music in the world? So uh, we need to mimic that sound. So we're three to five years behind on the sound. Okay, uh, what's cool in buildings that are happening all throughout culture? So, all right, let's mimic that. And so we're about 10 years behind on on the building. So what's trending on social media? Hmm, okay, I think we should probably... Get, get going on that. And so then Facebook and Twitter is like five years behind. No, that's not what we're supposed to be. That we're not supposed to be looking around at culture and society and going, what's cool in culture and society? And let's mimic that and put a Christian spin on it. And then maybe we can, we can reach people. We're to be the stinking thermostat. We're to be transformers. What, what do we see that in scripture? John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't care about style. He wasn't out there in the wilderness going, hey, is this, is this what everybody's wearing? Is everybody wearing this camel, camel skin? And he was way in front on the style trends. He had a completely organic diet. He was eating locusts before locusts were cool. And I mean, now he would be hipster to the nines and he's the dude. He probably had his pour over coffee with his locusts and his completely green recyclable outfit. And he was happening. And he picked the perfect location for ministry. I mean, there was, he did the demographic studies and there were 68,000 people that were going by the freeway every day where he was located doing ministry. And he thought, this is going to work out to be a spiritual revival. That's not what he did. What did he do? He was called by God. He was called by God. Now, let me balance this out a little bit. Is there anything wrong with style? No. Is there anything wrong with creativity? No. Be yourself. If you like those things, man, be it. But be it out of the glory of God because God is calling you because we can never mimic the world. That's not our job. We're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to transform. There's a person in scripture to me that really emulates this principle of not conforming, and it's Daniel. Daniel was taken captive as a young man to Babylon, and he was being pressured to have his whole life look like this Babylonian kingdom. His name that was given to him as he moved there was Belshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. But his name given by his parents was Daniel, which means the Lord will judge. They're trying to change everything about him. And yet this is what he did. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he may not defile himself. Daniel decided beforehand that he was going to be a thermostat. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. God had called him to eat this kosher diet. He wasn't going to throw that out when he moved into a new land. Do you know how much he would stand out by eating kosher in Babylon? Sorry, guys, no bratwurst for me. Sorry, dudes, no bacon cheeseburger for me. Um, could, I, could I get a salad? No ham on that, no chef salad here. He'd stand out like a sore thumb. And he didn't compromise that. And he went to the king and said, give us a test. Allow us to eat the way that God has instructed us to eat. 
and God gave his favor upon Daniel. To not be conformed, we're going to have to decide beforehand. One of the things that we see rapidly happening in the United States of America is Christianity is not cultural. It doesn't fit into our cultural context. If you study the Bible, read the Bible, and try to live out the Bible, guess what? It's not going to go in the same direction as culture, but that's always been the case in Scripture. That's always been the case. What's culture doing? They're going to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And so for us to have God transform our lives, first we have to say, you know what? I'm not being conformed to the world. I'm not going to do what the world's trying to cram down my throat. We may be getting that message more than any other generation because of how plugged in we are to media. You can't open up the internet without getting this thrown down your throat. You have to look a certain way. You've got to act a certain way. These are the things that you have to have. This is the way that you have to talk to fill in the blank. And before you know it, it, it's defined our lives. So it's a choice for us to make to say, I'm not going to be pressed into the world's mold. Difficult to do, but important to do. The next thing we see in this verse, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is the means for commitment. This is number four. I'm so thankful for this section because after the challenge to not be conformed, we need some power, we need some means, we need some reality in order for this to get traction in our lives. So it's rejecting something outwardly, but it's receiving God's power inwardly, and we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's the power for the commitment. The word transforms, many of you are familiar, is the Greek word that's very similar to our English word metamorphosis, and it indicates change from the inside out. The inside out. The best example of this that we see in nature is a caterpillar going to a butterfly. I wonder if caterpillars have any idea. Have you ever tried to put yourself inside the mind of a caterpillar? Like you're trying to get from point A to point B and it's like 18 inches. And you... I got a lot of legs. I mean, you ever feel tired with your legs and your feet and it's hard to get these two going? Try to get all of those going, you know? And caterpillars are pretty ugly. I mean, if caterpillars didn't turn into butterflies, they'd probably be extinct because everybody would be like, ooh, gross, a caterpillar. Stop on it, you know, kill it. And just as it's getting used to doing this, then it does like this for a while. Just hangs and starts growing stuff and what in the world's happening to me? And then before you know it, here comes this butterfly and instead of doing this, trying to get 18 inches, it's flying. It's been transformed from the inside out. And this is what God desires to do in our lives. This is where all this is leading to. As we present ourselves on God's altar in worship, a reasonable act of worship unto the Lord. We don't conform, but we're transformed. Then he begins to change us. And we become different people through the work of his hands. How does this happen? How does the, the practical application of this happen? It's through the re renewing of our minds. The battle's won and lost in our minds. Our minds is the control center for everything. For our actions, for our feelings, for our emotions, for our attitudes. It's here. It's our mind. So much of scripture puts an emphasis on what we choose to dwell in with our thoughts. So here we have the world's message being crammed down our throat. We have to reject that, but then embrace God's message and allow his truth to renew, to refresh, to wash our minds. Do you ever feel like after going through a day, seeing things on billboards, seeing things on the internet and advertisements that they would want to throw on conversations that you hear at work, external battles, internal battles with the flesh, the minds going in all these different directions. It's like an Olympic ping pong battle in your mind. Anybody have, have that happen or is it just me? All right, cool. And you go, God, I just need you to renew my mind. I need my mind to be refreshed. 
So how does that happen? It happens right here in the scriptures through the word of God. And this is what I would encourage you to do is make God's word a part of your daily life. Meditate upon it day and night. Start your day in the word. End the day in the word. Take some lunch breaks and study the word. Listen to the word, you know, on your phone and in your car as much as we can get into the word of God because it renews our mind. And as our mind is being renewed, then the transformation begins to take place in in our lives. It's impossible to have our minds renewed apart from the word of God. Ephesians 5, when it is directed towards husbands and how they minister to their wives, talks about washing with the water of the word. The word is likened to a cleansing agent. I'm sure you've experienced that before. Fill all the filth of the word, you get into the word, and then all of a sudden, you feel your mind is renewed and it's washed and it's strengthened. Remember, the word of God is not just for intellectual purposes. There is an intellectual element, an academic element, but it's given to us for the purpose of fellowship with Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. You can get all of the facts and not walk away with a transformed life. It's drawing near to Jesus. It's learning about him and walking and talking with Jesus Christ. I want you to be encouraged tonight. The metamorphosis is possible. Not perfection, but transformation that comes from the hand of the Lord. Walk in Romans 1 and 2. Make it your life first. God, you're so merciful. God, you're so good. You're the amazing creator. You're so kind to me. You've given me what I don't deserve. Thank you for loving me. I'm gonna give my life to you today. I'm just gonna take it one day at a time. I'm putting my life on your altar. I'm not gonna be conformed to the world. And then I'm trusting through meditating upon the scriptures, being in a place of worship, being in a place of prayer, that you're gonna bring the transformation in my life. You're gonna bring the metamorphosis. The caterpillar didn't see it coming, I guarantee you. All he felt is the crazy cocoon. And then eventually the Lord brought that metamorphosis. 2 Corinthians 3.18 uses the same word. It says, but we all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. Where does the transformation take place? Where does the metamorphosis take place? As we're beholding the glory of God as in a mirror. We're looking at who he is. We're like the moon. The moon has no light of its own and reflects the glory of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Jesus was transfigured. It's the same Greek word. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. So there was a moment in in Christ's earthly ministry where his glory was seen and revealed. Here's the last element of commitment, and it's the result from commitment. Isn't there a wonderful result from commitment? Would you agree with this in life? And some of you have committed to some pretty awful jobs. You've been faithful to it, and you've seen the benefit of it over a long, enduring time of faithfulness. Some of you have been really faithful and committed in some very difficult marriages, I oftentimes hear couples that have been married 40 years, 45 years, and they said, you know, to be honest, there was this point in our marriage where we almost gave up. We really contemplated it. But God was faithful, and he intervened, and he softened our hearts, and we would have never experienced this on the other side of it. What's come of that? It's a result from a commitment. There's a phrase that says the grass is greener on the other side. You know, you may imagine that life's better in a different marriage. I don't know about you, but I've experienced the grass is greener where you water it. That tends to be my experience and what what happens in in my yard. And what we find in our relationship with the Lord, church, is there's, there's a result that happens with commitment. There's something that happens in our lives when we live in this place of being on the altar. There's intimacy with the Lord that's seen at the end of verse two, that you may prove what is the good and the acceptable will of God. This word prove is by testing, to know that you know. It's a mathematical term. It's when you do the math and the teacher says, how'd you get the answer? You need to prove it. No, 
I don't know how I got it. You should rejoice that I got it. (laughs) That was a miracle. But now you want me to write it down on paper on how I got it. And we'll be able to know God's will to the point where we can prove it. We can test it. We can write it down and we can say, this is why I know that I know that God desires this in my life. To prove what is the good and the acceptable, perfect will of God. This comes as a result of of commitment. My life is surrendered to the Lord and I have a peace that this is where the Lord wants me to be. One of the questions that we have a lot is how do I know it's the will of God? How do I know if God wants me to do this thing or to do that thing? It's a question that's asked pastors a lot. Well, the first way that you can know the will of God is does it line up with scripture? Genesis to Revelation. That's the first place to start. And we've been given a lot of wonderful study tools. You can go to biblegateway.com. It's one of my favorite websites. It's free. And you go on there and you put a word in there like doubt. And all of the places in scripture where doubt is used comes in. Maybe you're thinking about getting married and you're wondering, well, what does God's word say about marriage? Type it in. And bam, in a millisecond, depending on how fast your internet speed is, maybe two seconds, you'll get all the verses in the Bible on on marriage. Bam, there it is. If you're wondering, you know, what does God say about work? Well, God has a lot to say about work. Put it in there. Work. Bam. And you'll get things like, if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. I guess it's God's will that I go to work today. (laughs) There it is. And all these issues start to be cleared up as we search through the scriptures. A lot of times God guides us as we do have a devotional life in the scriptures. His word's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. That's the first place that you go to discover the will of God is by looking in scripture. Look at the life of Jesus. Can you see Jesus making that decision and acting in that manner? And that begins to clear up a lot of things when it comes to the will of God. But there's still some things unanswered. Like it may not say in the scriptures, you should take this job instead of that job. So you're left, well, what is God's will? How do I decide job A from job B? And I've searched the scriptures, both are biblical options. You know, not, neither one of these jobs would have me do anything that wouldn't glorify by Jesus Christ. How do I decide? And sometimes I think God, in his love, leaves decisions like this for us to draw near to him in a very personal way. If he wanted to lay out life in that kind of detail, he would have put it in scripture. But he gives us the broad principles to where we have to seek him on the details. Okay, Lord, what do you have for me? And that's where we see that close and personal relationship with the Lord. And sometimes God will answer as we seek him for the details. And he'll say, I really want you to do this. I, I, I have this for you. And other times, he'll be silent. And I think when the Lord's being silent after we have sought him on one of these type of decisions, it's not a biblical issue. It's a loving father that's saying, you're in 31 Flavors, Baskin-Robbins, These are all good choices. You choose your favorite flavor. And those are the hardest decisions. I I pray often to the Lord, you know I'm not the smartest tool in the tool shed. I'm not very bright. So I need you to open the door so wide that I can't close it. And if you don't want me to do this, close it so tight that, that I can't open it. And even after that, sometimes the Lord's like, okay, Eric, just choose. These are all good choices. What do you do when you take your kids to 31 flavors? Do you say, thou shalt have vanilla. We will only have this flavor. Or do you go, hey, you get to choose. Go for it. Knock yourself out. But you can only have this many scoops, <laughs> right? There, there is some, some balance in this whole issue of, of ice cream. Psalms 37 verse 4 says, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I have to be careful with this verse because if you're not delighting in the Lord, do not follow the desires of your heart because they'll be opposite from what God intends. But if you can honestly say, God's my first love, I'm on the altar, I've been on the altar, then what's the desire of your heart? What do you want to do? Out of these two jobs, which job would you enjoy? Well, that's the one you should take because you're created to do that. 
That God has put that desire inside of your heart. A mystery happens as we start delighting in the Lord. His desires become our desires. He writes his will upon our hearts. In Philippians 2 verse 13, it says that God works within you to will and do his good pleasure. Some of you are complicating the will of God to where nobody could figure it out. And you're loving the Lord, you're serving the Lord, you're not considering doing things that are unbiblical. Man, follow your heart. What do you want to do? Where do you want to live? What job do you want to take? Do you want to marry her? Does she love the Lord? Is she committed to Christ? Does your heart cry for her? Do you want to spend your life, rest of your life with her? Or you're trying to talk yourself into it. Oh, you want to spend the rest of your life with her? She loves the Lord. You love the Lord. Hey, when can we do the wedding? Let's go for this. Let's do this. Let's fast track the premarital. No, I'm just joking. That probably wouldn't be a good idea. But sometimes we make it so complicated. I don't know sometimes if we could even pick the right t-shirt in the morning. You know what I'm saying? Is it God's will for me to wear flannel today or a t-shirt? Lord, would it be okay with you if I wore a t-shirt? Just get dressed. That's the important thing. (laughs) As we delight in the Lord, then he gives us the desires of our heart. If there's things that you're wrestling through tonight and wisdom that, that you're seeking, the way to get to the perfect will of God is to walk yourself through this passage. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world and then be transformed by the renewing of your mind and ask the Lord to show you his will and his direction and follow the desire of your heart. What have we seen tonight? We've seen the motivation for commitment is God's mercy. Not enough can be said about that. In just a moment, we're gonna take communion together. Remember God's mercy. Never stop remembering his grace and his mercy. Jesus said, do this often in remembrance of me. It's all based on the grace and the mercy of God. We hear this call. We hear Paul besieging, coming alongside, <clears throat> saying, stop and consider. We see the nature, it's total commitment. God wants us to surrender upon the altar. The means is a renewed mind. As we struggle and wrestle with sin, <clears throat> the transformation comes not as we dwell upon the sin, but as we dwell upon the truth of scripture. And then the result is that we'll know the will of God. So would you stand with me and let's pray together. (coughs) Uh, Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the simplicity of it. We thank you for the joy of it. And God, we just want to run to your altar tonight because you're so good and you're so kind and you're so loving. We know that every other place will bring destruction in our lives. So God, as we come and take communion and we look at what you've done for us, we freely offer ourselves to you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.